0: Welcome back to an all new episode of Surf Splendor. I'm your host, David Scales. And today I'm bringing you an episode and an interview with Dave Parmenter. Dave is a guy who um, a lot of people have actually requested that I interview him. His name's come up a couple of different times on the show in different interviews with other people. And um, I'll always end up getting a follow up email or a tweet, you know, suggesting, like, hey, you got to get a hold of Dave. just because he's such an interesting dude. He was a professional surfer in the eighties, maybe even through the early nineties. And um, he's a surf writer as well for probably a 20 year span. Most notably probably is that he's a surfboard shaper and a really well-respected surfboard shaper and surfing magazine at some point um, was quoted as calling him the most interesting surfer in the world. He's really well read, very articulate. Opinionated, somewhat provocative, I think you could say, and um, so uh, just an interesting all-round dude and a great guest to have on the show. So I'm proud to bring you this, and um, I hope that you enjoy the show. Um, If you're new to the show, welcome. All past episodes of Surf Splendor are archived on our website. There's a hundred past episodes now, and that is SurfSplendorPodcast.com. Even though this is a an audio uh, platform. You know, there's visuals that accompany every episode. So we'll have video clips of Dave surfing and um, some of his work. So definitely come check that out. And then you can also follow us on social media at Surf Splendor on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And um, also just engage with us on our website. There's a comment section for every episode. So you can go leave a comment about what you feel about today's show. All right. Without further ado, I'll get into Dave. Um... We um, He was actually also married to Rel's son. And we were kind of talking about that when I finally turned the microphones on. And um, I thought that was worth including. So that's kind of where this discussion is going to start. We, we end up talking about it later in the episode as well, much later. But rather than kind of editing and trying to stitch that in, it didn't quite fit. Um, and leaving it in at the beginning, it segues quite nicely into the actual beginning of the interview. So I'm just gonna leave it in. We're gonna jump right in with Ral. All right? Enjoy today's show.
1: I don't know, is it pertinent? It's not it's like a historically I historically think it's, she has she has her own I don't I'm not a custodian of her, you know Yeah. Of her legacy, She belongs to Makaha. One of the things that, you know, I was, that I saw pretty early on was that she was being co-opted by people. Mm. So from whatever, like there would be some like lesbian feminist from New York that would come and say, oh, I always thought Rel was this. She was like a right. natural. She was, and it's like, you know what? I'm sorry. I would just literally say, I'm sorry. You know, Rel's Rel. And if you knew her, great. If you didn't, I'm sorry. Right. You know, she wasn't any, you know women surfers looked at her as a feminist. Right. And and it wasn't like that at all. She had she didn't even really like the company of women. She liked to be she wanted to be one of the men. She was taught to dive and do a lot of things by Buzzy Trent and Buffalo Kealana and she just had vowed that all those when the when the international would come to Macaw, she wanted to be part of that world. She didn't want to sit on the beach. Mm. So she really was just trying to be like Buzzy Trent, you know. Sure.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. I got one or two questions answer them if you want you don't have to no that's, i don't
1: and, it's just that it's it's not like I'm uncomfortable it's just that it's like I don't nut-ness. she belongs to i just think that she belongs to people of makaha and that when she died a lot of people rush in and you saw the same thing happen with like with duke konamoko and people like that all these people that were like fringe guys when he can't protect himself come in like even rabbit kakai like oh yeah i went win one race against duke and like he taught me but then i beat him like you know and mm-hmm. people can they put it. They sterilize these people. Put them on a postage stamp, and then all the people that were on the fringes. And I saw this so often in Hawaii. Come in and just say, "Oh yeah, I, Rel and I, you know, or Duke and I, we was good friends." And and it's not like that. The right. people that really are close to them are quiet, especially in Hawaii. Totally. You know, yeah.
0: Yeah, and it does kind of um, for the oral tradition of the legacy moving forward. It kind of then slightly, not yeah. necessarily taints it, but adjusts. the Yeah, image and, and in
1: Hawaii, it really, especially in Macaw on the west side, it hasn't changed that much from the old days. Where there is, it is an oral, not a written history. Yeah, so exactly. it's it's you always run a danger of the po- of the postage stamp sterilization of somebody. I mean, look at the Laguna Greeter in Laguna Beach. You know, yeah. like when I was a kid, I drove by that guy. Sure. And then now, and he was just this wacky guy that was just out there. Now he's it's totally sterilized, and he's like a town father. Mm. But it has it takes away it detracts from how funky and and wacky the those beach towns and people like that were in those days, you know?
0: So the thing about oral kind of history, I think I remember reading somewhere is like, you might not get all the details, right. But what it does is translate the vibe or the sense of, or the feeling, you know? And I think that's the benefit of it. Yeah. There's limitations to it, obviously. But I think that like those people, I I can't speak for Ralph specifically, but in general, when people do that, it's kind of like, their intention is good and they're trying to remember it in a in a positive way you know well, and people
1: always interject so i you know i'm just talking specifically about hawaii why is its own thing and it, you know elsewhere in the world totally. it might be different but here everything is uh i mean if you look at now history um i remember like for example what gordon clark had told me when uh you know we we used to talk he would call certain people that and have these long, I remember once being on a phone call with him, like, seven hours, just, like, mm. in the shape, and I was freezing to death in the shaping room just because he called and wanted to know what, like, certain shapers that, like, his uh, his right-hand man, Matt Barker, right. had said, you know, they should talk to, and it was in, at a turning point in, in surfboards, like, in the early 90s, and he was, I remember him ta- telling me something that I always said, he says, don't, don't, you don't listen to that magazine shit, do you? It's, like, all the, the history of the magazine, any, the history of surfing is it's a history of people that were the first to do something commercially. He says that's bullshit. He says there's always people that did it before, that did it in a backyard overnight just to get in the water. Right. And um so now it's even worse because there's all most of these like so-called surf historians just go through from, you know, like their apartments somewhere and call all the old surf media, which is just half-truths or lies or propaganda built upon more half-truths, lies and propaganda. And then those become enshrined in books that everybody takes as gospel. You know, the gospel, and yeah. it's not—it's not like that at all. I mean, the one thing I learned in living in Hawaii for those like twenty-some years and knowing these people and listening to the oral history of, of things is that it is that the, you know the magazines and the surf media have it wrong.
0: Why is that? Why do you think all all media is like that, or is it specific to surf media?
1: Well, I think it's. Uh, I think, it's, I think it's just the nature of things. I remember even when, I remember when Oliver Stone, who I didn't care for the the, the the movie when he came out with JFK, is, is one of the things you realize in, in, in life today, especially in America, is that when you're at an event and you witness it personally and then you read about it later or see it in a film or, or a movie or something like that, it bears no relation to what you actually saw. Hmm. And with surfing, it's even more because it's a very, uh, you know, it's a selfie sport. It's a, it's a very narcissistic sport. People are always starring in their own movies. And back until probably things were perverted, like in the late 50s, about the individual rider over the act itself or the ocean or whatever, it, it has gotten more and more about people thrusting themselves into, you know, the uh, the Don Quixote role. Sure. <laughs> Just tilting with windmills. And, and, you know, and I think there was that one classic moment that they talked about where it was probably some some interview or something with Phil Edwards or something. And he said, "Up, it would have been a pretty pure sport until one day someone said, Hey, I thought you like surf better than so-and-so today. And then it was, it was done. We were cast sure. out of paradise before that. It was just a bunch of guys around a fire and it was like, you know, trying to make better boards and surf. And there was, they didn't really look at it. Like, I mean, people knew that there were surfers better than other surfers, but, um, but something about like letting that little bit of original sin out of the bag. Yeah. And, and it changed everything. And then it's, ever since then, it's been about, each surfer's up there, like, lead guitar in his own rock band, right. instead of just being part of a, like a more cohesive culture.
0: Well, let me ask you this: you, um, you say that about media and print, but you also obviously wrote a lot uh, during the mid two thousands and contributed articles to. Surfer. Yeah, I started writing
1: for the magazines in nineteen eighty one, and uh, and just it's always like a love hate thing. I go through periods where I feel. Like I just, I don't read the magazines anymore and I haven't for a long time. I don't consume any surf media and it's not, I just let, let the kids have it. It was when I was a kid and I was excited about free ride and twin fins and like new wave surfboards and you know, the whole thing that was happening, the revolution that was happening with, with Sean and MR and rabbit, uh, throwing out the black wetsuit, clear board trolls. I didn't want older guys, grumpy older guys, you know, telling me what was, what it was a young sport just like rock music so the last thing people need is some grumpy older guy even if he's a veteran and even if he has more experience they just don't need let him have it but periodically i just have these bouts of conscience where i just think well you know if i was a kid growing up and there were key articles that like dick brewer had written or uh, phil edwards or uh, especially guys like you know pesman the, you know like the elders of the sport that had a lot of experience and that had bridged the gap from redwood and and uh, tom blake you know Cigar boards all the way to the to foam and without their contribution, without them telling you what they thought or what they experienced, I couldn't have the surfing life I had today. And so that there is, there is some sort of an, uh, like a moral obligation for people that have had a lot of experience or worn a lot of hats in surfing to maybe try to influence the younger surfers today to tell them, Hey, you know, just one of the things that really bothers me the most is that people do things unquestioningly. People, you'll see people go out and surf, one foot surf in Southern California and wear a leash Hmm. or booties. And it's not because they need, they just don't even question it. They don't go, Hey, do I need a leash today? No, I don't. like, I can run faster than the waves, you know, but it's just that they don't question things. They just consume the pablum that they get from the, the, you know, the surfwear industrial complex through the magazines. They don't even question that the magazines are just basically lap dogs for the biggest advertisers. And it's just that lack of unquestioningness. So what I try to do is just try to find that little Tom Sawyer kid that's out there, whether he's gonna build boards or just surf and just say, Hey, it doesn't have to be this way. Surfing's a wilderness pursuit. You can just cut yourself free from all this and go out and experience it. Really not much different than the days of like Peanut Lars Peanuts Larson or just, mm-hmm. or Phil or or, or you know, Pete Peterson or Tom Blake. It's out there and you just have better equipment and better technique and And it's more crowded but you can still have those same things it's a relationship with the ocean yeah
0: it seems like there's a lot um more opportunities or platforms to express that than just through print publications or something as a writer for example or even as a filmmaker you know like
1: filmmaking yeah i think well it's so it's it's been so democratized i don't really know the writing i don't there has been some really good writing and and the surfing culture over the years. I don't, I don't follow it now. I don't, I just, I think everybody's, uh, um, you know, surfing is really the ultimate selfie sport now. And the writing is pretty much not much different. There's, there's not really people that are really writing anything that I would consider literature and, uh, in other aspects of, in other sports that are similar, whether it's, you know, mountain climbing or, uh, you know, exploration or, or sailing around the world, you you get some pretty hefty bits of literature I agree, you know, or adventure yeah. stories. In surfing, you don't.
0: I was wondering, I've thought about that a lot and wondering what the limitations are. I feel like in the magazines, you certainly see the same equation over and yeah. over of like, we went on a surf trip and here's what yeah, happened. Yeah, but those are basically. all ruses.
1: That's just, that's, just a, that's just a thing where they, they give you the illusion that these guys went on a surf trip. But no, what happens is so-and-so from a major surfwear company, calls up the magazines or gets a photographer, hey, we're sending our performance seals to this place and right. we're gonna do this and we're gonna, and then some, they get a writer that will come in and like make it seem like it was a real, and I was part of that too, and I turned down a lot of trips after a while, you know, more and more in the mm-hmm. early 90s when I was doing travel trips. It just got to be where I couldn't do a proper surf trip anymore, like the Naughton Peterson things or, the, or Peter Troy. It just was impossible. You just couldn't do it. I sure. A classic example was Mark Reneker, when he first went to Iceland, he had seen some film, some surf in an Icelandic film in the background, and goes, "Wow, that's great!" And we talked about it. And I said, "Yeah, it's like I was looking at that myself because there's the Gulf Stream goes up to the southwest corner of the island. It's all, uh, you know, igneous and you know lava reefs, and it's probably really good." He saw surf and he went there and he wanted to do a magazine trip. Got a you know an A-list writer, but the magazines wouldn't let him go just to take pictures of like some guys in their like forties or something. They had right. to send performance seals that they probably couldn't even show you on the map of the world where they were at that time. Mm-hmm. They were just plugged into their, you know, uh, you know, walkmans and had six bio you know boards that they would just break in pro lights and they just went and and it, that's just the that's just the norm now.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it's the norm for those mainstream publications. But I do think that there's new platforms coming out, whether it's websites or what have you, that kind of embrace the philosophy that you're talking about. It seems almost like you've used your website to kind of share some thoughts, I think.
1: Well, it was originally set up to to be more than than just a surfboard thing. I wanted to put writing. I just don't have time. It's just building boards. And being active in the water, especially in the paddle sports that I do, I just I just don't have time to yeah. curate the, a website. you know it's, once, yeah. it's so stale after a while right and uh, and I end up spending almost all my time all my writing is just to customers because I have really good customers and that uh, a lot of them are repeat and spend a lot of time uh, talking about design and construction and things because I find that that even people like my age or, or in their 40s it came out of the last, few decades with the media totally uneducated about what goes into a surfboard totally and when i was a kid every single surfer you met like in the 70s uh, they knew about cloths and yeah. weaves and types of resin because they they were only, the was only surf industry back then was outside of like o'neill and santa cruz with people working in surf surfboard factories mm-hmm. so everybody was very conversant in all these things and i find now even people that are really diehard surfers that have surfed around the world, they don't understand all the little the foam sandwich construction.
0: Well, it feels like there's more information available now than ever, but at the same time, there's a lot of misinformation. There's more yeah. misinformation
1: than there is information. I think the, the only information that was ever really accurate was in the, the uh, literature that Gordon Clark put out yeah he would put out these things and he'd w- laid you know open his treasure trove of all the, th- the tests that they had done on surfboards from like the 50s on mm. and all the mechanical things because it is it is not a matter of opinion it's just a, you know it's it's engineering and people have always kind of uh, flown in the face of that and they've also taken um you know, like oat brand science, certain things and misapply it. Like most people don't really understand when they say, when people ask, I want a strong board. And then I say, well, why do you want it strong? You want it strong, like for impact strength or compound strength, like dings and dents, or do you want it strong for tensile and shear strength, which is buckling and breaking. And they're just like, huh? Right. You know, they just don't understand these things. Totally. And then all the things that can go into those things.
0: So were you good friends with Gordon?
1: No, I wasn't good friends. I just, uh, my, I had a really good friend that worked for him for like 25 years, Matthew Barker, and uh, he... He was kind of a curator of lots of people that were like, whether they made 200 boards a year or 10,000 or whatever, he was just really good at finding people that were, that would be part of that Clark Foam family as like a brain trust or people that got it, I guess. So he was good at, at kind of networking those kind of people. Sure. And I think, you know, and I think Gordon listened to a lot of, a lot of people. Some of them were pretty new shapers like myself. Some of them were probably guys that he knew from, you know, the Hobie days. Sure but he spent a lot of time uh trying to make things bad. better
0: he's a fascinating figure um and i've heard like a lot of mixed things about him from every angle um did you like him
1: oh i well i didn't know him well enough to like him i talked to him a lot but uh but yeah i like him in the same way that, that i look at all those guys from that generation and and i had just set my stone with them you know i've always set my stone more with the Tom Blake who was way, way up, obviously a different era, but uh, Hobie and, and Mickey Munoz and Phil Edwards, and the people like that, that they made all their stuff, their toys, you know, they're mm-hmm. gonna make uh, gliders to sail in the hills at Dana Point. They made their own, made and flew their own sure. gliders. They made race racing paddleboards. They built all their boats. They, they're open ocean watermen, not just the inshore shore break watermen. Um, you know, Phil for Phil Edwards, for example, was kind of like the father of all modern surfing because he invented yeah. basically the turns that we use used. To, you know, Phil went, Nat Young just built on Phil and then other guys like Michael Peterson and right. built on that. And then the other, the Aussies, they, you know, the free ride generation, they built on those turns and it went on up through Curran and then Curran to Slater and here we are, you know, but it was basically sure. started with Phil Edwards.
0: Yeah. Well, all those guys, um, share in common kind of being the peak performers or best at what they do in a lot of ways. Um, Gordon, on the other hand, I mean, fits that bill, but what is unique about him is just he's a shrewd businessman, you know, or he's an excellent businessman, but he is shrewd as well. And I think that's where some of the negative comments that I've heard about him come from. You know, I've
1: always, I've heard there's such a, a, uh, gosh, there's such, such a Wild West, or not even Wild West, but just the old, like, cattle baron, range war kind of myths about that. And in all the years that I was involved from, I never saw that. I I always saw the other side of things. I thought of like real passive aggressive board builders whining about certain things, but I never saw it. And and he never treated me that way. Even as a small builder, he couldn't give a shit, you know? Like he never, to me, I saw an engineer. I didn't see a shrewd businessman. Hmm. I saw really what I did see was an incredible passive aggressive epidemic going on where everybody would be blaming somebody for their own troubles and then they're the source of it
0: we see that still today
1: yeah we do i'm sure you do it's like i remember one of the things you know one of gordon's missives he said something like well you know if you're still whining about this if you're still whining about backyard builders and everything like that just you know go see a psychologist and if you and if that doesn't help, you just have to, you know, did you willingly and knowfully get into this industry knowing all these things? And then if, if you still keep whining and complaining, basically, does the term asshole ring a bell? <laughs> he basically was calling it on everybody. Like you, I love it. We all go into this for a lifestyle. Yeah. And to be, you know, be able to organize your, your day like on a pretty uh, flexible level day to day, maybe not like week to week, month to month. And then, and then when people don't get rich or they don't become like Al or Rusty Priesendorfer, then they start looking around for someone to blame. They right. all get into it knowing that there's no money in it. Right. Yeah, you know, it's it's
0: classic. Well, let's back up quite a bit. Um, did you grow up in Newport beach?
1: Yeah, I grew up, I was born in Pasadena and we lived in uh, like the San Gabriel Valley to my folks got divorced. And then the smog got so bad that literally we were like economic, I mean, uh, environmental refugees. It was, the smog was so bad that my mom wanted to move my brother and I, <clears throat> somewhere healthier. Wow. And uh so we ended up in Newport in probably like sixty nine or seventy and I started surfing there. We live right at Newport Point. Uh not the glitzy Newport that's now, it was just kind of like a you know, like a quadplex or something. It was pretty low rent, you know, and uh so started rafting, body surfing, ziffy boarding, water wandering like all the other kids and then eventually pipe aboarding and then into you know proper stand-up board surfing and uh, really it was only there for a year and a half oh okay like board surfing before i moved up to cayucas on the central coast got it which okay. at that time was just a uh you know like one friend said it was just like like one of the biggest like single parent you know outposts in the west coast it was was it? just a scruffy little town with like it was the population was like 1940 people and there was a population of kind of refugee surfers, maybe a few guys that were around here that were ab divers or fishermen or something, and then mostly people from outside. Okay. they're refugees from Southern California, getting away from crowds and everything. And, uh, you know, there was a a range of coastline from, you know, like Morro Bay all the way up to Big Sur. It's like 80 miles where nobody really knew much about it. Most of the surf at that time in the the mid-'70s was, you know, located in a few places, and uh, the rest of it was just kind of bomboras and weird funky reefs and just wind torn beach break and cold all year round. And uh, so it really appealed to me.
0: What about that appeal to you?
1: I think I grew up looking at Wayne Lynch and Victoria and I really liked that thing of him getting in his Land Rover and using it like Flippy or Mickey would use a boat in California and just heading off and having that range and outwitting all the sheep that are following him and finding ways where no one else could find them and just being i just the just the lonesomeness of it of of Hmm. having all that and also that no one really the ways weren't good enough to attract crowds like they would in, uh you know like santa cruz or even like well san francisco the ways just aren't that good sure you know it's just it's one of those places where you have to live live here to get ways yeah and visiting is very tough but um you know back then it was just wide open
0: who who around here um, did you look up to and kind of draw, I don't know, uh, mentorship from?
1: Well, there was a, there was there was a you know it was a big black wetsuit clearboard board outpost and uh, in, in our day there was uh, I had a friend that was from an older friend that was from Alameda and they surfed up north. It was Jeff Chamberlain. He came down to Poly to be a journalism major and he was he kind of personified that whole like Wayne Lynch is like, you know, there's a parking lot in front of it, it ain't surf. And uh, and then there was Sam and Matt George were here going to school, and we kind of formed this group of people that were very progressive-minded right about the time that Free Ride came out. and uh, And we wanted that. We were, you know, like we wanted that revolution to happen. We wanted surfing to be progressive and about travel and being able to range up and down the California coast without localism, which was very prevalent at the time. And then in uh, 1979, Bill Bowman from Stubbies in Australia, after they, the success of the Stubbies contest there, the first man-on-man in 77 at Burley, they did a Stubbies trials in, at Black's Beach in Southern California. And all, like, surfers from all over California, all the young surfers that kind of believed what we did, we wanted to model surfing after what was going on in Australia, which was egalitarian, wide open, meritocracy based on surfing, based right. on you know mateship. And it was like a meeting of the tribes and there was all these people that before were just in these little enclaves or like bedouin at oases or something like that that never interacted like all of a sudden i had friends like dana point san diego and santa cruz and and we were and we all just said hey this is what we want to do you know Mm -hmm. and california changed after that i think you know it was like a rejection of that old that old mentality that was so regressive that it was holding back surfing here
0: sure well Um, the way you talk about surfing almost seems anti, uh, professional competitive surfing.
1: Not at all. I've, I've, i that would be like talking to a soldier and saying he's against the military. You know, I, I don't (laughs) think that there was professionalism was a, was a very controversial subject in the seventies. And that's one of the things now where you just don't see that kind of debate back then leashes, um, professionalism, contests, uh, the whole idea of localism, those were things that were really hot-button sure. topics that went back and forth in the magazines, uh, much like you see other like gnarly political issues today you know, right. that are outside of the surfing culture. and But today, they're not even questioned. People well, just uh, just accept things.
0: Right. I guess what I mean is, obviously, you have a professional competitive career, right? Yeah. I mean, you. I think I, in my notes, you got, I think it was... 14th on the world tour yeah,
1: that's about the highest i ever got yeah, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't it was a short-lived career but sure uh, um but no i i'm not against professionals and i'm certainly not against contests i i, I to this day i love race i mean i do racing and canoes and stand-up paddle boards and i love i love competing and especially without judges of course but uh it wasn't it wasn't the that wasn't the problem the problem is the is is what happens when Every single aspect of that gets commodified and politicized, and strings start getting pulled. It's, it's, you know, I remember Ian Cairns once saying, you know, just basically he was telling me stop complaining because it's the same system for everybody, and that um, the the champions always find a way to be creative within that framework, which is is entirely true. It is. But there, yeah. but there, there is other aspects of what happened to professional surfing that that people try to steer it one way or the other, yeah. and it isn't. It isn't but I'm sure all athletics are like that too. You know, when, when there's judges involved and everything, but it was more that it was more that people were we were losing something and I, I I know what it is, it's just hard to explain to people, but something about the system once it kind of left the the waves that made made surfers' reputations, like in Hawaii in the Great Waves. Once like when, when the ASP started we started going to like wave pools and small junk wave Fast and everything. and it was breeding a different kind of surfer and you can see it today the surfers are incredibly adroit they have an incredible like almost cartoonish ability to do things on waves but they're boring mm. in in my day the people that i looked up to you had ian cairns and pt and sean thompson and mark richards and simon anderson you had these people that were in terry fitzgerald that were well read probably been to college They had a lot to say, they were well-traveled, they were cultured, you know, they were um, interesting people with outsized personalities, because back then, to defy convention and defy the establishment, to just say, no, I'm not going to be a brickie in Australia like Rabbit did, I'm going to be a professional surfer, you had to have incredible personality, you had to be almost like a Buzzy Trent or a Greg Knoll in the 50s and just say, no, I'm not part of this 50s thing, I'm going to be a surfer. Yeah. and. So those personalities created the interest in, in that kind of a sport. and Ian are always adumbrated that really well about that people relate to that sort of thing that, that people are interested in a, in a McEnroe or Nastasi or people based on like people they love to hate or people you know these rivalries between people and that you had to have that sense of, of theater and drama. But I think what you see now is just these people that are these kids that are really fantastic surfers and maybe, with the people that follow all the little arcane you know just esoterica of every little foible that these guys have it might seem interesting but to an adult surfer like me it's like there's nothing that makes me want to follow it because there's there's nobody like rabbit bartholomew that's going to climb up in a soapbox and just say you know i'm the greatest or or we're busting down the door it's like that's what makes you follow sports is the personalities I agree, and I, maybe I'm just uh, well. You outcast. I just don't see that. Now. Even
0: if those personalities do exist, the media doesn't really. Um, no, they
1: manufacture it. Yeah, the the, the the kids that are here, they're homeschooled kids that are brilliant surfers, but they've never they don't know shit, and um, they they get they have manufactured personalities. Do you watch
0: any of the WSL events, the pro no, events? No, it's
1: just not. No, I, I as a general rule, people will people. I find it more interesting to. To not be part of that and then have people, people are always, you soak it up through osmosis, whether you You like it or not. You just can't help it. You know, it's just, you go into a a restaurant somewhere and it'll be plain. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, let me ask you this Um, Is there an alternative model that is better in terms of running? Oh, it's already,
1: it already is happening. What what is it? Well, that is that I just, you know, I think that uh, um, with the, with just the sheer amount of money that's in the sport it's freed up a lot of surfers to go and do things other than compete on you know like a world circuit and I just and I think that the the pro circuit as it is now it's just it just doesn't have the legitimacy it once had because there's all these people that with all this money and all this tech this technology and jet skis and everything that can just go to all the four corners of the world and all the seven seas and and uh, do just like the spectacular stuff and yeah And I think that the there's a there's kind of like a fundamentalist backlash against it. Not that per se there's anything wrong about competing on the on the tour or anything about contests or or the new World Surf League or whatever it is, but that there's people are starting to realize with this kind of like backyard backlash, like what what, you know, and it's led by surfboards. Hmm. The return to domestic surfboards, like by backyard shaping to like these hipster boards, and it's it's made people go and and reject a lot of the you know, the dogma that has been plaguing us, you know, like from the like from the Slater era when it started.
0: Yeah. You talk about, um, things that influenced you like Wayne Lynch and free ride. And there's imagery around here of surfing, but you also talk about, um, that you don't really follow a lot of, or consume a lot of media anymore. No. What would you like to see? And what, I mean, you obviously draw inspiration or you have in the past. What would you like to see nowadays? And, to be, to inspire you, you know?
1: I don't want to see anything. It's not for me. It's a young, it's a young person's sport. I want the, the people that are, were like when I was 15 and excited about these things, I just want them to be able to have the same sport or lifestyle that I had without, without a bunch of grumpy, you know, old trogs and black wetsuits telling you what was what, you know? Sure. So I just, I just try to stay out of it. I'm a board builder and I, you know, I'm a historian, but I have my own thing and I try to, I just, I want to. I would just like the kids to have have that that freedom again yeah. without like all these people sure molding them and but
0: if there's interesting board building going on somewhere else in the world and interesting surfing happening on those boards though i mean doesn't, don't you feel doesn't interested interest no, it, doesn't? it doesn't interest me okay no
1: i'm you know it's like i remember one of my, my favorite writer that when i was a kid that turned me on to just loving books and and wanting to be a writer was ray bradbury who just passed yeah. away and and he he's he made me feel a lot better because he said in one interview, he said, well, I don't read books in my field. He doesn't read science fiction. He says, if it was really good, I'd feel bad. <laughs> you know, and if it would, and then, and I'd always, I'd always, in a, in a, and I'd always feel worried that I was going to be imitating or copying a good idea or something. So yeah. he just didn't read in the science fiction field. Not that he wrote science fiction, but yeah, I just feel my, my uh, influences and the things that really make me excited are the past. Like we haven't even, per- we haven't really... Uh, vetted or properly assessed the stuff that was going on in like 71, 72, 73. If you look at the magazines back then, it was, you know, the shortboard was so new and there was so many ideas and some of them are gimmickry or whack, wacko. But if you look back at the magazines and the kind of ideas that people were putting out, uh, even like people like Tom Mori and all these other people, it, there was just so many, so many unassessed things and yeah. it's been overlooked. And you're starting to see little bits of it. Maybe a lot of it's misapplied now, but, sure. um, I, inspiration for me comes from the past of looking mm. at things that uh, that worked a thousand years ago. Like in sure. Hawaii. If you go to the Bishop Museum and you see the boards there and you you know, you put on the white gloves and you get to touch these things and you realize that these, these Hawaiians that started from Southeast China in, in ten thousand years ago, migrated from island, to island, to island to get to the apex of the Polynesian triangle, which is Hawaii, which had big enough trees to make those boards, those OLA boards, and you realize that they had you know, complex like parabolic rockers and foils and basically Bernoulli's foils that you didn't see in aviation for a thousand years. They had all those things. They had to cut those things in with with stone tools and, you know, adzes and things like that and pumice. And, and so they, they chased it. Yeah. They didn't just happen. It wasn't like the tree just grew that way like a dugout. They knew what they were doing. And it was, it was a result of being the greatest seafaring race in history yeah. and ending up in a place in Hawaii where there was actually... You know the surf and the trees to do it and sure. and uh that kind of surfing and then and then how it led on to that rebirth with later on like with Dukanamoku and tom blake and on into the present there's just so many exciting things there because i like surfing away from crowds and like big slopey offshore bomboras and then i make these like 12 foot boards to surf them that are paddle boards that that you can surf that i've raced on them but you can still you know you can still paddle them and then i'm into outrigger canoe and and i just look at more of like what's a far outside of the shore break I feel like as a surfer you need like Wayne Lynch he kind of transcended surfing and got into sailing and that and if you look at like Cabell and Mickey Munoz and Flippy and and Mickey is they all graduated to be like offshore watermen right you know any if you're like in your 40s and 50s and 60s and you can still smell bubble gum in the shore break you haven't really gone anywhere Totally, and, and I don't want to be one of those. I don't want to be 60 floundering around in America in the shortboard. You know, totally. it's like I want to move. I want to apply everything that I've learned from being a kid in the short break and all those excitements and enthusiasms and being on the tour. And I just want to keep growing so that I end up like Buffalo, Kailana or Mickey Munoz or Phil Edwards, mm-hmm. you know, being 70 or, or flippy out 50, 60 miles off the coast diving or paddling or surfing.
0: free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. How did you get into board building?
1: It was something that from very early age. It was uh, when I was a kid surfing, like say seventy four, seventy five. The shapers, the guru shapers back then, were like they were like uh, the Merlins. They were they were wizards. They were on another layer. Like if you saw Jerry Lopez, who of course was a shaper and designer, or you saw you know Larry Bertelman at a surf movie in Newport Beach, and, and you would just go, wow, it's great, but but if you saw like a Dick Brewer or, or or somebody that was like, or a Tom Parrish, you'd be like, oh, my God, those guys were they were on another level. They were mm-hmm. beyond being surf stars. And it was because there was a lot of mystery back then um, of what went into surfboards. And I think at that time, too, even if you lived in Newport Beach or if you lived in Florida, everybody looked to the North Shore of Hawaii as, you know, the penultimate thing. It was, you know, it was, you know, Valhalla and. That's where all the boards were designed, and those ways back then, especially with the equipment, it was life-threatening. So the people that made those boards, with the mystery behind what made a board work, and or didn't work, it was, you know, it was really exciting to me. It was like being part of that, you know, empirical kind of process of cut and try, cut and try, the way aviation used to be. And I always come back to that because I remember, you know, I'm kind of an aviation historian, and in the 20s and 30s, and before the Second World War the average enthusiast could build and fly a plane. And then it just got too complex after that. But there was a period where you could build airplanes, you know, in a backyard and it was with dope cloth and, you know, spruce struts and things like that. And you'd fly it. Hmm. And if it didn't work, you'd come back and try, you know, something else. And, um, you know, the mystery, I think there was that sense of mystery of what went into a surfboard. You would look into a shaping room anywhere from the outside as an outsider or like a very, you know, intimidated, uh, Grimmie, and you would see this guy in there mowing foam and, and, uh, and it just always excited me because it wasn't until pretty late even that, uh, Rocker was, you know, identified as like the major driver. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way I always saw it was that, you know, Brewer would chance upon it once in a while, but he, he didn't seem to be able to replicate it as much as like when Tom Parrish came on, Tom Parrish. When he hit his stride, was able to do what Brewer did, but nail it, you know, nail like a rocker, time and time again. And then from that, um, Bill Barnfield picked up the, you know, the baton, and he basically his engineering and you know, uh, quantitative measuring approach was where Rusty Priesendorfer got it and then mm. Rusty was basically, you know, in my opinion responsible for refining the thruster to the way it is today. It was that ab- sure. ability to do that and work in like 130 second of an inch tolerances and nail it. Mm. Was that was really the hard sledging work that it took to get it from like an imperfect kind of crude idea to the refinement that it's at now. Sure. So as that excites me. Like to me, like even if even if thrusters have stayed pretty stale for so long, it was still exciting to be part of that thing where everybody goes into their own respective shaping rooms and just has at it.
0: Right. So you were at that time, while that all was happening, you were here in Central Coast building your own boards?
1: Yeah, well, I started I started doing, uh, you know, cut downs and stuff with my friends in Newport. And then up here, it was something that I, would, I dabbled in. Uh, if a birthday came around, I'd always ask for a blank and a, a bunch of resin and stuff, and then and then it just got the more and more that I traveled, the more and more that I I started surfing on the tour. The less fun I started having on tri fins, and so a lot of the big drive that I, I had as a shaper was to be able to make single fins again. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was it was it was weird. It was like Richard Dreyfuss and <laughs> Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where he just like has this vision of like the devil's towers and he starts making mashed potato models out of it and every and the more that I started surfing on the tour and I I just it was like a palate cleanser I needed to go off and yeah and like between legs on the tour in Australia where the waves are good I would go buy an old single fin out of the racks and I would surf I just needed to And it I had nothing against multi-fin boards it's just there was something about how mechanical it had gotten and how programmed you had to surf it at some point if, if you didn't surf exactly like Tom Curran you were just getting reamed in heats. Sure. You had to do that triple pump bottom turn and then the head fake snap. And if you surfed any other way, you just got gonged. Yeah. And so I started feeling like, God, I just like on a single fin I feel like it's jazz. You know, you feel like you can be Michael Peterson where anything can happen. You can just go on these rifts and you can use all parts of the wave and and so that was what really got me seriously into shaping was just to follow that.
0: Did you feel um like you had to compete to make a living as a surfer? Was that driving part of kind
1: of... <laughs> you have no idea. When I was on the tour, almost the whole time I was on the tour until probably like the 90s when I was already kind of well off it and just doing parts of it. I didn't even have a credit card. You rented you rented cars with, you put $500 <laughs> down. I didn't have a, you know, I don't even know what I did. Like guys, even like Tom Curran, he just took cash and you, and you hit it in places. And right. there was no safety net. There was times that I'd go and I had to, if I didn't get like an equal 32nd or a 17th, I wouldn't even have the money to go on to the next leg sure it was being even in the top 16 i probably got mm-hmm. from like one's clothing sponsor like airfare around the world and yeah maybe like 700 dollars a month and from a wetsuit sponsor like 600 and that was considered unreal
0: but had you not been doing that you would have been working a real job probably right in the central coast
1: um yeah i was i was up until i started doing Winning a little bit of money in contests, I did. I worked at a surf shop here, okay. in, you know, retail, and yeah. uh, and I always knew I was going to shape, but I just kept putting off the that that hard work of actually getting in there and learning your, your craft because you could as a as a surfer shaper it's frustrating because you can see it in your mind mm-hmm. and you could whittle it if you had to, but yeah. learning to use those tools. It's a long it's, learning it's a curve. Long, Yeah, it's a yeah. long. It takes 100 boards just to get to have some sort of fluency.
0: Well, that's that's kind of why I asked the question about making money just because it seems like in one sense you're conflicted in your mind, like you want to go out and ride single fins and build boards and that sort of thing. But you can make a living by competing in surfing. You don't have enough time to really no, you did fully that. do both. You, the thing
1: is, is but, the guys that I wanted to go on the tour to be around and be part of were the free ride guys, and they were doing it. They wanted to make a living. They wanted to be, but they were mostly doing it just as a way to go and surf around the world sure. originally okay. and not work. But then it changed and they were so successful that now that their progeny now are like a bunch of homeschooled kids that are incredible surfers that get are, you know, totally, mm-hmm. you know, overpaid, you know, over yeah. overpaid, oversexed over here. You know, right. Right? It's exactly like, it's uh, so it's not like there's any conflict. It's just I wanted to be part of that. Right. I went on the tour for the same reason that people will go in the military. It's like, I don't, you know, you don't want to kill people. I just want to be part. Of, I want to be with those men. I wanted to be part of that yeah. and set my stone with that and learn from it. And it was the only way I was going to be able to travel. Right. So.
0: Yeah. So um, what were you doing in terms of building boards during that time? Were they mainly for you? Do you have client base that you were building at no, the time? I was, I was just you doing all through label?
1: the 80s. And then on the tour, I was just making single fins for myself. Got it. In backyard settings, and then in in about 1988, I did a board that I made like a six-channel tri-fin six-five, and I I just was having a hard time on the tour surfing small boards like everybody else, and you know I just needed a bigger board, and I, I got a board that I did that was because it was so crude it worked, and that's something I learned a lot about was like some boards boards today they can get so the shapers are so good and the programs that they use are so good and so refined that the boards are sterile and if you, if a, if a novice shaper picks the wrong blank and has to like over adjust and cut too much rocker, or there's too much curve or do does something that a really good shaper wouldn't do. Sometimes those elements can be like crude enough where there's actually, it's some sort of a fulcrum to work upon and the, and the board can just do magic things. Hmm. So I made this one board and I ended up winning a, the, like a contest on it, like the Caton like 1988. And I had a really good uh, showing at Bell's beach and good surf on it. And, and, uh,
0: what was the error in that board that turned into something magic?
1: Just weird curve, you know, had like okay. a bump in it. And it was a 6.5 that was made out of like probably an old like seven-zero Barnfield blank and lots of uh, just lots of things that are really good shaper like Rusty wouldn't have done. Got it. But it was it was just what I needed to kind of uh, break just through that monotony of having just these perfectly refined boards. Right. That all kind of like surf the same. Right.
0: Um so when did you develop your label then and start developing clients
1: Before I even started sh- shaping boards I as a kid I loved the whole idea of Aleutian juice mm-hmm. of what it meant back then it was a old like a term that surfers used like when, when these swells just came out of the north and they just had all this power and urgency that like the other more westerly swells that came from like off Japan or Kamchatka didn't have and back then people didn't know where really waves came from Right. Really. You know, the best you could do is like in the 70s or even the 80s, would look in the LA Times and see like a really rough synoptic chart. So there was something about when surfers would wake up one day in Waimea or sunset was a certain way, they go, oh, this is a real Aleutian juice swell. So I started doing that on skateboards. Oh, okay. You know, in high school or junior high. Sure. And I just kept the label. It was like a boyhood thing. So I yeah. just kept it all the way through. Um,
0: when did you find yourself kind of. Uh, making more boards for clients and customers than
1: never. It didn't start until like 1988. I started kind of getting serious about it because I just I knew that my days as a competing surfer were over, and uh, I was falling further and further behind, and having um, you know kind of like a soul sickness about it that you know things had changed and I didn't didn't really belong in it anymore. Didn't but didn't have the courage just to break with it. Sure, you know, I was a, get to travel, go to Australia, and it's a bit of a living, and you know facing. Walking away from it and starting over, I think, is pretty daunting for anybody. And uh, and then I, you know, I started doing, getting serious enough about it. And I think my first board that I actually sold was for my oldest friend from Newport that I grew up surfing with, Carl Weezer. And I made him like a 6'4 thruster or something, and he actually like paid me up like, fifty dollars to shape it. And <laughs> and so it's actually pretty recent. It's only what twenty seven years ago. Sure. Yeah.
0: Tell me about um, the introduction of stand up paddle. When did that come into your life, and why was that? Um... You know why did you embrace that? What about well,
1: that? it was it, the that was actually was just a, a extension of like the other boards that I've been making for a long time. These paddle surf vehicles, where I had seen these boards that Tom Mori and Mike Doyle designed in the 70s, that were like modern day olo boards, and they were boards that you, you could paddle on and surf and um, cover distances on. And I was kind of doing that in Makaha, and then. You know, people have been doing stand-up surfing for ages it goes all the way back to the 30s in, in Waikiki and through the 50s with the the Beach boys like the Ochoys but and then in the mid 90s Laird Hamilton and Dave Kalama were using tandem boards with longer wood paddles like surfing small ways at Malawar but they didn't really do anything with it for a long time you sure know? and then Laird took Brian aside in Tahiti or at one at one point in like in in 02, 2002 and said Brian this is a great workout for foil boarding or toe surfing. You he know, you works your legs out just paddling. I mean, Brian got a paddle and came back to Macaw and he started doing it. But being Brian, who's an innovator, <clears throat> Brian Kealana, who invented, you know, the jet ski and the rescue and the, the sled and everything, all those modern life-saving techniques within a few months, he had just turned it into a new sport. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, you know, Laird and, and Kalama had been doing it with no changes for like eight years or something. Yeah. Um, brian immediately saw the potential for riding big waves and saw the potential for shorter boards so we started working on you know 10 foot boards down from big 12 foot tandem boards and then down to like nine foot boards and then our other partner todd bradley has an enormous paddling background in hawaii and outrigger clubs and you know all around you know paddling he came up with the first carbon so that we had paddles that were measured in uh instead of like 15 pounds <laughs> and uh, Brian was like the Johnny Appleseed he just went and spread it everywhere Yeah. and then in and of that within a year or two of that by like 03 they were looking at establishing a regatta class racing thing too. The, the dream was is that, like for Brian and I was to be able to go out and surf in the middle of the ocean like in the Molokai channel because these boards you could surf just like you're in a one man canoe or in a, in, a, in a proper prone paddleboard, and the the whole thing was to to create like a paddleboard class like you would see in hawaii with an open and stock and do it with stand-up and and so we spent probably just as much effort and energy on designing those boards and the techniques and that's a, that is like 100 uh brian and, and todd and myself there's and, sure. and then later other people became involved in it like you know archie kalepa and bonga perkins and a bunch of other guys that were instrumental in establishing it in hawaii but what, what appealed to me was it was just another way to escape. Like it's, it's ironic to me that it's gotten to this point where you have stand-up surfers going out at legitimate surf breaks and crowding people out. And it's just adding to the chaos and, and, the, and the frustration, just like longboards when they came back in the 90s. And because for me and for Brian, it was just a way that we could just go further away from crowds right? and surf waves that no one wanted or couldn't get to. And so it's ironic to me that it's like turned into this other thing. You know, yeah It's like inventing the Winchester, and you know, for defense and you know, in a wilderness setting, and, yeah. and it's like a boon, and it changed the West, and it turns into just like a murder weapon or something sure. like that. Or with Lindbergh and aviation being a proponent of something that was supposed to bring man together, and it ends up being like one of the worst mass murder weapons of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So, but it was it, it was a very satisfying thing. But today, pretty much, I just mostly just I just do the races. Oh, okay distance racing and and offshore stuff i
0: you not do you surf stand up paddle surf Rarely. yeah rarely. Yeah. yeah um why move back from uh, kind of tangent tangential question but why move back from hawaii uh it's just California? financial
1: it's, a, it's such an incredibly high uh cost of living there and okay. uh, the company that we that Brian and Todd and I and I created for the stand up uh just Fell in hard times uh, for a number of reasons. Yeah, the company was really, really good at innovating and and uh, you know cutting trails for everybody else, but it was terrible at being able to make a money at it. Sure, and so there was just that was no longer viable. I wasn't getting any, uh, I just couldn't afford to stay. I just yeah. had I don't really have anything, I don't have anything to do with C4 anymore, right? With C4 Waterman, and I don't have an income from that. So I had to come back and to my house here and start over build boards build boards all start all over again
0: totally cool yeah it seems ideal in terms of um, hawaii in terms of you know water activity and
1: it is the paddling is actually better here we have is it yeah the the downwind runs here which everybody loves in hawaii are actually much better here it's just nobody to paddle with right there's only a handful of people to paddle with that's the thing that i miss most about hawaii is just seeing uh, oc1s on everybody's car and stand up and everybody talking about runs and Going to like I just went over and did a um, the Molokai Channel Race stand up in, oh, okay. in, in the end of July with a partner that I paddle with here and just seeing 150 boats show up with people from all over the world I I really miss that you yeah know? and as as a former competitive surfer that that would be in another part of the world and was wondering if he's able to like be able to afford to go to the next stop based on like judging decisions it's really nice just to have you and the clock and then yeah you know there's no judges in racing and you and you really a lot of people probably think it's just about getting out and paddling on a treadmill. And it's not because you have to use all your resources as like growing up, sailing, surfing, racing. um, Yeah. All those things that you, you learn as like a, a a potential water person, you have to apply in racing because you're pitting. You're not just pitting. You're not out paddling people. You can't out paddle the Kiwi channel. What you are doing is pitting what you know about the ocean. It's like being an entrepreneur. It's like I'm gambling that I know something the other guys don't, and I'm going to exploit that. Right, that's to me is just so much fun. It's way more fun than surfing in contests.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can see that for sure. Um, Can you tell me um, about meeting Rel's son?
1: Yeah, I knew Rel from the tour. Everybody did when she she was on the tour in the you know in the '80s and well from way way before that when I was still young, and um, and I didn't really meet her socially other than being on the tour until like '94 when I went on a a trip to Christmas Island. With uh, with Yvonne Chouinard and some of the Patagonia guys, and she was part of Patagonia then. So I met then, and we we hit it off. We both looked at surfing in much the same way. We're you know romantics about surfing and look back into the past and gloried in it. And she loved her Hawaiiana and collected it, and loved the days of Tom Blake and and uh, and very much missed that internationalism that at Makaha that had when the international came because it stopped going in like '72 or '73 when all the surfer, every surfer in the world that was of any merit came to Macaw. And, uh, and, it was really good for the place. And then in that, in that time in the early nineties, it was going through another really good period because one of its favorite sons, Rusty Kalon, had won the longboard championship and longboarding was back. And there was, it was kind of, you know, embracing the outside world again. And there was, uh, I think just that, that breath of fresh air with the longboard thing coming back and, and, uh, the legends like Greg Knoll and rabbit Kikai and all those, and all those guys were being lionized again and brought back into the fold. And it was a pretty, it was a pretty good period.
0: Hmm. When you were married, did you live in Hawaii the oh, yeah, whole time yeah. or did you live in California at all? No, I kept together? this,
1: I've kept my house here all through. It's just a rental, but I kept it and yeah. subletted it to kids from the, Moondoggy shop. There was always shop croms that sure. would end up moving out on their own when they left their their parent the fold from their parents. So this has always been kind of like a sublet. But I knew I'd never find a you know this old farmhouse ever again. Sure. And every time I would come back from Hawaii, I'd see just more of an Orange County thing up here and yep. more Beamers zooming around and more Orange County assholes driving like idiots. And, and I knew that if I ever let this place go, I'd never find it again.
0: Yeah. Um, in regard to Rel we've talked about her a little bit earlier and about kind of the world adores her firstly and has an image of her. Is there anything that you can tell us about rel that maybe, um, is a misconception or just something that we should know the listeners should know that isn't out there kind of in the public.
1: Yeah. I think later in her life when she was, was very ill, she, she worked really hard at, um, with the, working with her kids contest, the Menahuni contest, which actually started in like 76. It's part of the fever of the whole Hawaiian Renaissance then with the Hokulea and music coming back and language coming back. And she started this, this kid's contest, uh, you know, it was a very small thing. And then it grew into something that just like exceeded its, you know, what its original mission, mission statement was. But she ended up kind of getting, she be, like, became anti-Rel or she started to become like the patron saint of the Menahuni and, uh, You know that really wasn't her at all she was rel was a hard scrabble girl you know girl that grew up in in macaw and wanted to be like the man she was taught she lived next to and was taught to dive by buzzy trent and she dove with the man and and any any guy that's been around from those days like buff buffalo on will tell you that she was the best diver really yeah she was probably one of the best divers in the islands she was just incredible Hmm. she was a black belt judo she spoke she was a hula dancer she was she was a cultural anthropologist she spoke the language she works at radio stations she did color commentary for the navahini race which is the oc6 race for women uh, she was a renaissance woman and uh but she was she was um she was badass she wasn't like a you know the saint or anything right. like that she was she was an incredible woman yeah that was able to dive and go down and mess you know get in these duels with tiger sharks at 60 feet and um, travel around the world and do it as like a single mom i mean yeah. she when she wanted to go on the tour she had to go and i remember she was telling me she used to go to my ely point and they would get these little ely ely rocks there that she would collect rocks pile them in her volkswagen bug and she would take them and sell them for people for aquariums and that's how people like that got themselves around the tour they didn't have sponsors you know right. and then and with women too it was even worse you know and absolutely then when she, and then when she was had breast cancer and had surgery like one of her sponsors i believe it was hang 10 dropped her
0: in the midst of it yeah
1: like yeah. You look at that compared to like what happened to bethany hamilton sure you know i mean it's like she they they had no one to rely on but themselves and mm-hmm. uh they and she just her whole thing was that she just she wasn't doing it for women's lib or to be sisters doing it for themselves she wanted to be with the men right she wanted to surf with like the men with the men and not miss out on when those guys would get around and tell stories from all their adventures around the world at the mccall international like in the 50s and 60s she just vowed that she would that world would not be closed to her sure
0: fascinating it Talking earlier about how um, kind of the modern professional competitive surfer is just vanilla, and you know they all—that's just
1: my opinion. They they might not be, well, they're, they're, no. but there's just there's just no way that they have. See, here's the thing, David: this, this, the the sur- surfing today is conformist. To be a surfer, like actually, to be a non-conformist today is not be a surfer or sure. not have a tattoo. Yeah. So it used to be a non-conformist thing, and it used to it used to be like saying. I'm not gonna get a nine to five job and the two point one kids and the you know two cars and the keeping up of the Joneses next door in the trap home. I am not. Yeah. I'm gonna be like a gypsy that travels around the world in serious ways. That took there were very real consequences for that back then. Today right. there's not. It's actually conformist. Well, so exactly. what you're getting is kids that are conforming, homeschooled, they've got these, you know, million dollar deals, they've got this you know, hot and cold running media application and digital. you know, and everybody can Instagram, everybody can be famous, everybody can be, you know, on screen. And so what's happening is that people, the kind of people that with that have personalities are the ones that are going to reject that. And I think more and more you're seeing in surfing the kind of people that can look at that and say, that's lame, that's tired. I'm not doing that. They're, they're actually the backlash and they're the ones that have the personality or the character that of of interest that will stand up against it.
0: Well, that's so I was going to tie those points together actually, which were like back in the day, you had, if you wanted to solely surf, just surf full time, you had to generate income, REL selling rocks or whatever it is to get you to be able to surf full time. Yeah. Which, you know, doing those things, finding a real job or selling, being uh, entrepreneurial helps you develop character so that when you're actually in the water surfing, you're a more interesting surfer. You're a more nuanced surfer. You have something more to say. The model that it's turned into is the, the companies go, hey, you don't have to work. You don't have to sell rocks. We will provide everything for you so that you can solely surf. The problem is when you're solely surfing all day, every day, yeah. you become vanilla, you know, and you have nothing interesting to say. And you might technically be a more proficient surfer, but it does... You know,
1: well, that's entirely people have the proficiency is. But then at some point, you basically you get to be like the the Mercury program where they train chimps to do things faster than the actual astronauts. Yeah. And that's what you know, where we're that's the danger we're getting into is this almost chimpanzee like training of these guys with the technical skills they have and uh, the safety nets that they have to do these things. The safety nets are incredible. There's no way that, you know. 30 or 40 years ago, people would have taken the risk that they did without the kind of elaborate safety nets that they have. at some Absolutely. of these waves, yeah. the skis and the bottled oxygen and the CO2 PFDs and the, you know, all that stuff. It's yeah. just, it's just, it's just a different thing. It was just you, like Greg Knoll always said at those, when he, you know, he'd tell me about the, that day at macaw cause I, cause I surfed there too. And he just would tell me where he was lining up on that day in, in 19, you know, 69. And, and, uh, and I just, I just go, oh, my God. I mean, the biggest I've ever seen, and I've never even been out that far. You mm-hmm. know, and he could see pass cut in a point, And he just said, yeah, when those big black rhinos come, big wooly rhinos come marching around in a point, it's just you and your board shorts and, a, and that paraffin. There's nothing else, mm-hmm. you know. Like no rescue is. teams. No rescue, no. He said Buffalo, his best friend at the time, Buffalo was over by Claus Meyers when he ate it on that one wave and and just said that if, he, if Greg hadn't gotten in before this one reef at Charlie's Point, he would have just said, oh, brah. That's it you so nothing I can do yeah I mean yeah. that's you know when he took off in that wave he probably knew that he had like less than fifty fifty to make it right but that was you know to me that's that's uh, it's just that thing of being able to stand in front of the rhino with with you know a two bore mm-hmm. and you know one to slow it down, one to kill it before he gets to you and that's that was surfing you know the the stuff that people do with the skis and all this other stuff now it's great, but it's not the same as standing mm-hmm. in front of that charging rhino.
0: It's not the same as having the unknown, you know, having, having the real threat. Yeah, exactly. You know,
1: there was one saying that I always love that came from, I I forget if it was, might have been Joseph Conrad even or something, or perhaps it was Kipling where he said that the thing that goes most to forming a man's character is facing danger and solitude. And Mm -hmm. surfing used to have that in, you know, in spades. It's just nowadays, not really.
0: Not so much. Um, How often do you still surf?
1: all the time but it's just uh, I do all kinds of things you know I spend a lot of time paddling spend a lot of time longboarding a lot of time on uh, the the you know my paddle surf vehicles and like these slopey ways everything to me now all the boards everything I do is devised towards getting away from crowds and like if I can go year in and year out without ever having to surf around other people that's what I do. Sometimes that means, you know, shortboards and like secret spots and everything if it's good. But I don't I just don't waste my time chasing like you can take you all day to drive up the coast here and go into like the nether regions looking for like a little shortboard wave. And then it's but you can just go and do like a downwind run here locally and be back in two hours. And it's just it's just as good of a surfing experience. So in this area, it's just it's it's all condition related. But the, the driver for me is just being not having to surf around people.
0: What constitutes a crowd to you? Because I mean, I, I don't w- know. OK, because <laughs> yeah. I think you would find value still in surfing with some friends, though, right? I oh, mean, always yeah. go surfing
1: with friends. But yeah. and on the Central Coast, there was always this thing is like a crowd was always if there's, you know, people out that you didn't bring with you. Got it. And, and it's changed. There used to be unwritten rules if you went somewhere because the spots here are so minimal as far as their circulation and the consistency that if you went somewhere and ways were good and there was someone out there already. You just it was like a, the frontier thing where you just moved on to the next mm. waterhole got it but that's not you know in play it's just there's so many newcomers and different different kind of culture
0: awesome anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to cover
1: um well i i think one one thing that i really enjoy that might seem kind of uh like a a pitch for you is that it's been really nice seeing u.s blanks come to the fore again and and kind of you know one of the things when clark foam went under it wasn't the foam because there was good foam out there, it just wasn't really in the right configuration or the right place. But the thing that I missed the most was the family. It would, it, Clark being part of the Clark Foam was a family, and you couldn't take a uh, portfolio to a trade show, or you couldn't like throw your weight around. You couldn't like sway those people or grubby Clark or anything like that. You just you had to earn that being in that family by being like a quiet birdman, just achievement and not saying much, not like being a. It, You know, it was just, it was really neat to be part of that family and knowing that that tradition went back all the way to Hobie, you know, I know like the 58 and and like it just went those little delivery trucks that went out to all those stores that you see when you watch like Bruce Brown's movies now and stuff and being part of that in that continuum was exciting. And and so it's really been good to see, aside from the quality of the phone, the blanks and the service with US blanks, is it just kind of good to see that family reemerging. Where you start to know all the people and the delivery guys, and, the, and it's kind of the the domestic thing has come back. You, you, it's, it's there's no doubt that the domestic industry and the backyard thing's growing, and that's one of the things that I want to do more than anything. Obviously, I have to make a living, but I try to encourage backyard shapers. Anybody that's seriously trying to shape boards, they're welcome to write, and I'll get to them when I can. You know, if they have yeah. questions about anything, I want to encourage it. I don't want to sell a board; I want them to make their own boards. Right. Because it's good for all of us in the long run. The more trained the uh, craftsmen we have, whether shapers or sanders or laminators, the better off we're going to be. Hmm. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is The Deal.
0: Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment that is a harsh lesson in business
1: sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together i
0: didn't want to do another stomp you out
1: speech it opened up so many more doors the show is called the The deal Deal.
0: listen to the deal listen to the deal on spotify
1: because if things are coming back from china it's already past the tipping point yeah it doesn't make sense to to do that anymore and soon i think we're going to see major operations in in Places in that are business friendly, whether it's here in California, like in the, you know the Riverside area, or in the, one of the desert states, or something, and you're going to see big operations come back with with expertise. Yep. And uh, it's it's just really good <laughs> to see the backyard thing back. Here's a story you probably haven't known. Um, in uh, the late '90s, um, I was part of a kind of a think tank working with Yvonne Chouinard on his, what it would eventually be a surfboard program. Uh, you know, cause my wife, Rel worked for him and he, I was making him boards and he kept breaking them even though that was all pilot air, And, and because the boards themselves exceeded what you would, they're they very thin, very light, very lightly glassed. They're like these long boards. And, and uh, we were working on, he wanted to reinvent the board. He wanted to, he figured there had to be a better way and he'd done it in other things. And, what people don't know is that Gordon Clark basically opened up his books to him. He said, hey, this is what, because Yvonne and some of his guys or people that were coming to him were saying, Do you, we wanna go like with a polystyrene and vacuum bag this. And, and Gordon basically said, hey, you know, we've done all that before, we've looked into it. Here's the pros and cons. We'll open up all of our research to you and basically handed them over anything that they wanted from his years and years of looking at that, even though knowing that if Yvonne was successful and Patagonia was successful, it would be an enormous, you know, competitor to him. But I was there, I saw it. And with Matt Barker, Matt will back me up on this. He, Gordon said, you know, we'll hand over any, any of the data that we have on this to help you along. People don't know that people also don't know that <laughs> Gordon also donated blanks to REL's Menahoni contest under the provision that no one ever knew about it. Hmm. He, if you look at his, uh, his catalog, especially in the later years when, when the domestic industry was under attack from offshore things or mass production, if you look at the catalogs, you know, in the, in the five or 10 years before Clark Foam closed, there was vacuums and planar blades and planar sharpening uh, services, basically free of charge, you know, and all these, he was trying to make the, the job have less drudgery and less trouble and make it easier for the domestic industry. And his whole rationale, and another thing that that I always want to stress is how important, one of the most important things that ever happened in surfing was Gordon Clark. And You talk about him being a shrewd businessman and being like this cattle baron that, that, you know, staked out his claim and was like, did what he could to manipulate the business. He always stood up to the people in the late 60s and early 70s that wanted him to shut down the backyard, backyard guy. There Mm -hmm. was, if you look at the magazines back then, there was, there were editorials that were like Donald Trump esque about, you know, in Surfers magazine about fly by night and, you know, board builders, and you had to go with a major builder. And Gordon just said, No, I'm yeah. selling anybody that wants a board. Because he said, I remember going into the lumber yards in Southern California trying to get some balsa to make a board, and said all the balsa, good balsa had been taken up with sweetheart deals with the big guys like the yeah. Velzies and like the Yaters and stuff like that or whatever. And he said, "I just, I'm just for the little guy. I'm for the small guy that services somebody on a local level, and makes boards for local surfers for their local waves, and that's kind of what we're about." Of course, he's a great businessman, but that, right. and he, he never gave me any reason otherwise to, to, you know, not believe that that was true. He always, yeah. I, I, was not a very big customer, and he, they did their utmost to help me.
0: Well, couple questions: um, Why would he not want anybody to know about the don- donations?
1: Because well, for one thing, is he just that's just how he is. But the other thing is, when people like that, when someone gets word that a company like that gives out stuff, oh, okay. uh, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, I've seen that in other things. Too. Yeah, people yeah. don't want to know. It's not like it's they just don't want that large S to be known. But he was always supportive of things like that. And there's other there's another company in Hawaii too. I wouldn't even want to name, but it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Always just was, you know, when their cause was good and, and it was the right person, they were they were always very giving, but.
0: Um, with the Patagonia board building project, whatever came of that?
1: I just disagreed with where he was going on it. And I, and I, and, uh, the boards that they're doing are fantastic now. And Fletcher, his son's turned into a, you know, a terrific shaper.
0: So that story that you were talking about was the precursor to that. Yeah, the it's precursor to that. Because Fletcher,
1: Fletcher was interested in shaping and he was, and I, he came here a lot and I taught him a lot of, uh, some things and he had other, other, uh, you know, people coaching him and, and teaching him, but he's, you know, he's a shaper in his own right now, but I just disagreed. I don't disagree with that kind of construction, but at the time my take was that why are we throwing out the existing construction of boards when it hasn't been maximized? It's like we're comparing apples and oranges. We're taking the worst of contract glassing, four ounce, super light glass with thin stringers, and we're just throwing it out to go to this new type of construction with this whole other new set of problems. Right that actually makes surfboards more needlessly complex when I wanted to keep it as domestic as possible because the good thing about polyurethane and polyester is it, it lends itself to backyard experimentation. It is literally the kind of thing that you can build a board overnight. Right. And I don't want to lose that because it's when you do that, it's in my interest as a shaper and designer to build a board better than what else I have in the market for tomorrow. Absolutely. All the other companies, even ones that aren't molded, even these like major labels that have gone and, and, and have... Warehouses full of like retro fishes or like these new hipster things. It's not in their interest to improve those right now. It's in my interest for my customers and I to improve it on the next board. Mm-hmm. Though if you, if those guys go to improve it, it ruins all their advertising, their model names. It ruins their 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 warehousing of all these boards. So you start to get into that Detroit thing where they need to carefully control their innovation to model years to right. their advertising because they spend more on advertising than doing anything. Sure. So that's why I'm, I'm such a fan of, I mean, I use EPS all the time in yeah. epoxy and it's a great material, but what I like about polyurethane polyester is that it's, it's democratic and it's easy to work with and it lets you innovate without a lot of complexity. With some of these other, once you start getting into vacuum bagging and uh, it's good for certain kinds of boards, but it's not, I don't really think it's good for the typical shortboard that everybody mm-hmm. rides.
0: The final question I always ask everybody is just, what was the last surfboard that you rode? but i'll extend that to last watercraft that you rode for you
1: uh the very last well yeah, yesterday i last. went and did um i just we go down here to one of our local downwind runs which is equivalent to the the famous hawaii kai run on oahu and it's like a five and a half mile run and it's like smoking downwind and, and uh, just took my 14 foot race board down and 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 it's like an hour paddle, and you're hitting speeds 15 to 17 miles an hour, and you're surfing the whole way. You're just linking together these complex series of bumps and chumps and lops and just chops and wind swells, and um, it's like air, it's like combining. It's used like Wayne said about Wayne Lynch said about sailing. He says it uses part you, know, you use parts of your brain. That you no longer use or. or occupy in surfing you know hmm. you, as you get when you surf as long as like people like myself as it just gets easier and simpler and you just the way that people surf now they go out and a lot of times wade out into the shore break somewhere like in southern california or your paddle out and just sit and it's a lot of sitting and it keeps you in good condition but you don't get any fitness out of it and, if, right. and in past like 35 if you don't do if you don't cross train and do other things you're just the best you can be is like a skinny old man you have to if you want to keep a level of surfing up you have to do other things you yeah. have to Use other muscles than the ones that you strain paddling prone on a small board. Uh, so it means you have to knee paddle, you have to paddle in a canoe, you have to do all these other things. You have to body surf, you have to swim, you have to hike, you have to do all these other these other things. And uh, so, the thing about this area is one thing we do have is wind, mm. <laughs> and it blows in a perfect direction, as any sailboarder would tell you down the coast. So there's there's just a gold mine of of great downwind runs up here, and really nobody knows about it. Mm.
0: Well, they do now. Well, that's good. <laughs> but that's the good
1: thing about uh, open ocean paddling is that you want to see other people. Yeah. That's the, that's what's so fun about it. Yeah, totally. You know, when I was in Hawaii and you see like in other islands like Kauai, if you saw someone with a one man on the car coming the other way, it reminded me of how surfing was in California in the 50s. You always hear about was like if you saw someone with a board, you're just like, hey, right. you, you stop and you talk. And it's because it's a it's a real brotherhood and there was no problem with crowding.
0: So, I assume you build those boards yourself too?
1: Uh, paddle? My boards, yes. The canoes, no. The canoes are, the one man canoes are, are, are made by uh, companies like uh, Kamanu in, on Oahu, which yeah. make the fastest boat, the Pueo. And uh, the other boards, all those stand up boards, are boards that I've designed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the paddle boards, the yeah. prone paddle the prone boards. Prone paddle also. boards,
1: yeah. Everything. Are yeah. So
0: they made out EPS, EPS? Like- it
1: can, EPS. and I have some that are polyurethane from the old Clark foam days, doing a lot on EPS now. The weight is. Lightweights are good sometimes, but there's something to be said for a heavier paddleboard for somebody with, you know, a surfing background. You get them moving and they just like battering rams. Mm -hmm. And those are starting to get popular. There's a lot of people now. I think that the stand-up paddling and racing has turned into a gateway drug for a lot of people that have discovered, like, prone paddleboarding. Prone paddleboarding is getting big again in Hawaii. The race this year in Molokai was probably 50-50. Um, so a lot of people are doing it again. People are discovering outrigger canoe. People are discovering how fun it is to ride a longer, you know, surfboard, Yeah. you know, like these Olo style boards in 11 or 12 feet, then like way beyond like the skip fry glider. So I think it's been a good thing. It's been kind of exposing people to all these other options. And there's a lot of waves in California that are totally underutilized that you can ride on these glider type boards. I agree. And there's no crowd pressure and no one to piss off. So why not?
0: Tell me, um, how do people get a hold of you for illusion juice if they want to buy a board or get a hold of you to shape something? Um, just, the, what's the, the best way to the the,
1: the website that I have, Nautro is uh has the email address and I just people just write in and I just we carry on a dialogue. There's it's actually a collaboration. A lot of times it'll take a week or so of you know, intensive back and forth about every detail about yeah. the board. I want to make it a custom thing, but more than anything I really want people to learn about surfboards because it's, I feel like that the the media and especially the magazines over the last 20 years have not done their job at at informing people about one of the the most important, really the only part of the surf industry you need is the surfboard. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's so little known about it and there's so much ignorance, so many myths. And I mean, if you can go on these like shapers websites, I won't name them, but it's just, it's just full of myths and wives tales. And, you know, people that, people that work in the industry, that actually work you know like my glassers and the shapers that I know at the end of the day you don't have time to go online and carry forth about your expertise you just have time to sit down in front of the TV and have a beer Sure. so that's where you gotta ask yourself some questions about where some of this spurious you know yeah. stuff is coming from
0: interesting good stuff alright thank
1: you sounds good I wish I knew how would feel to be free
0: i wish i could break all the chains holding me i wish i could say all the things that i should say say them loud say them clear for the whole round world. That's a lot of history, insight, and perspective crammed into one conversation. Thank you, Dave Parminer, for all of it. Uh, I'd encourage you, the listener, to share this bit of digital oral history with someone who may find value in it. We have a link to Dave's website, Nautro, N-O-W-T-R-O, Dot .com on our website surfsplendorpodcast.com. So just come check us out. We'll link out to it. Also Dave mentioned legendary surfboard shaper Tom Parrish a couple of times in this conversation. I have an episode of Surf Splendor with Tom that I recorded at his home in Maui. Uh, that's episode number 68 and um, I'll link to that as well just on the on on Dave's page on surfsplendorpodcast.com. You can access it On our website, or you know, you could actually just find that episode sixty-eight on any popular podcasting app as well. Um, They generally just archive the last fifty, but they're all free. We have all last one hundred episodes of Surf Splendor for free on our website as well. All right, follow us on social media at Surf Splendor. Leave a comment about today's show on our website, and I believe that is all the business that I have. All right. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you again to everybody. And this is David Scales just reminding you, make sure you get out there this week, catch a couple waves, and shred on.